it's funny when the movement makes the mainstream, but still don't do shit or bruise a dream. Do some new level of youth on scene. The truth is, the kids are losing steam enough to say it's a shame to undermine it. We're talking about the most hated machine of all time. It's the plan and game of most of our lives. But in November, who had the patience to stand in line? Good morning. Welcome to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We air on Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her, and I have a returning guest with me here today. If you'd like to introduce yourself again. Yeah. Hi. Um, my name is Elizabeth McMechan. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a women's and gender studies student here at the U of M. The UMFM 101.5 broadcasts at 1200 watts from the University of Manitoba, located on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabeg. Nihiawak, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. So Elizabeth, I'm so excited to have you back here today so we can have a really interesting discussion on labor. I'm very excited. So firstly, we can talk about the gender division of labor. So much like everything else in our society, labor is divided because of gender. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's interesting because we're talking about intersecting oppressive structures like patriarchy and capitalism. Things get divided in ways where feminine work or women's work, for example, things like nursing, childcare, teaching, that sort of thing, it becomes compensated less and valued less societally, even though it's really important for the production of society generally. Which is, you know, and then you see an intersection with that with racialized work, for example, like the temporary foreign worker program that puts racialized, marginalized communities into work like farm labor, for example, and nannying. That work is like barely compensated, if compensated at all, in a lot of circumstances. So you see that intersection of patriarchy and colonialism and capitalism and racism sort of informing our ideas about what is labor and what constitutes a labor intensive work. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, traditionally masculine, the STEM fields. So science, technology, engineering and math. So all of those that are traditionally associated with more masculine traits are paid more and taken more seriously. And if you have these jobs, you have the capability to fulfill your societal role as the breadwinner and you have the capability to take care of your, you know, your nuclear family. That you've been instructed to you know, create your monogamous nuclear family with 2.2 children (laughs) that you get to go home to at the end of the day. (laughs) Exciting times. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So a really uh, poignant example that I've noticed in my own life. So I've done support work and I've done firefighting. So those are two very different and very different gendered jobs. And just the wage difference, like support work, it sometimes starts very close to minimum wage, whereas something like firefighting, it starts like closer to $20 an hour starting. And then something like construction, whereas both of those are very intensive and yet still paid very differently. Now, we're going to talk about those a little bit more later, but that's just a really solid example that I'd like to bring up because it's something that I think about a lot. So, Elizabeth, what type of labor should we talk about first? So, like, I think something that's often sort of disregarded as being a form of labor is emotional labor. And I think we're hearing about that a little bit more as time progresses. We're sort of learning what emotional labor looks like and the difference between it and, say, its opposite, with my air quotes here, would be physical labor. What I would argue is that emotional labor is a form of physical labor, right? Like the support that you provide for other people through discussion, through physical contact, 
the stereotypical caregiving roles that are often disregarded as not being actual labor are in fact physical labor. You use your body to perform those tasks, to discuss things with people, to provide support for people who are lonely, who need care, who need extra care, is a form of labor, but often disregarded because it's not waged, because it's not participating in the capitalist system that requires monetary value in order to be anything significant. Motherhood, parenthood, for example, primary caregiver roles have an intense amount of both emotional and physical labor, but because they're not compensated, because you don't get a wage for staying home with your child when they're fevered and sick, it's not a job, and what you're doing isn't actually work. And I think that's very interesting because at the same time, we'll use a, a mother as an example, goes into work as a nurse to care for people who are fevered and sick in the hospital. But if she stays home to look after her child, that's not work. Even though you're doing the exact same thing. You're doing the exact same thing, but that's not work anymore. And arguably, to put it in the perspective of of labor and raising a labor force, caregiving, especially like parenthood, you're raising the next generation of laborers. A huge important role for the continuity of the system, it's still not valued. That reproductive labor is still not valued, which is... It makes sense, honestly, because if you if you compensated caregivers for the work that they're doing, the system would fall apart. I mean, that's yeah. like, you know, where would that compensation come from, honestly? And if you actually valued those people for what they were doing, you wouldn't have people to participate in the labor force that you could then oppress and, you know, not compensate fairly there, right? So, I mean... It's so true. And it's ironic because some people might notice that it's not compensated because you're not producing anything. You're producing humans. You're literally producing humans. Yeah. You're producing emotional stability that allows people to be functioning human beings, right? I mean, what would you do if you didn't have someone to care for you when you're ill or someone to listen to you when you're when you're upset? You know, like to help you cook food, you know, like these tasks that we undervalue that are immensely important is a really big signifier of what a system like capitalism values, which is not your emotional stability, which is not your physical health, but rather it's what you can produce that lets the elite, that lets the bourgeoisie profit. And childhood, having a healthy and happy childhood is not profitable to to the people on top. They don't care. I want that quote on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so well said. And now that we're on that tangent, I actually think we can jump straight to talking about how the structures create a system where we require people to do emotional labor. So if you want to go off on that. Oh, I'd love to go off on that. I invite you to go off on that. (laughs) Thank you. So it's interesting because I was in a class recently where we were talking about mental illness and framing it in a different perspective. And my professor said we should be thinking about depression as a symptom as opposed to a diagnosis. And initially when she said it, I was like, oh yeah, wrote it down. And I thought about it as I was on my way home and I was like, wow, that is extremely profound because thinking about these, these consequences of consistent emotional deprivation, of consistent deprivation of our humanity, and then going to a doctor and saying, I'm sad. And they're like, oh, here is some pharmaceuticals to keep you able to work, to keep you able to do your job. Now go back out there and get it done. We're not looking at like a macro perspective. We're like, what is causing everyone to be so lonely and to be so sad and unable to get out of bed and wanting to hurt themselves or others? Like, why aren't we looking at what's causing that? Because it's poverty. 
because it's violence and it's poverty and violence that's created by a system of oppressive structures like capitalism, like patriarchy, like colonialism, like racism. And then once we've created that system that's harming people or creating a system where wherein people want to hurt themselves or others, and then we don't value the people who are trying to provide aid to the people who are hurting most. So for even your partner who might provide you with that emotional labor that helps you get through it, you know, there's no there's no compensatory system for that, right? I mean, it's it's on you to find someone that will, or something that will help you through that process, but then that person is rarely ever compensated. I mean, we compensate therapists or we compensate doctors for providing us pharmaceuticals, but we don't compensate the people who sit down and hold us when we cry. There's no production value in that, and so therefore it's not valuable to our society, and we don't we don't give that any second thought when I think it should be given a lot more credit than it does. You know, like I'm not afraid to admit that I've been going through a difficult time emotionally and physically lately. And I, you know, sometimes stop and think about all of the labor that people have been giving me through this process and how they've been doing it of their own volition. You know, they've been doing it on their own time because they love me. But at the same time, that's so much work. Like, it's so much work to sit there and hold someone when they're upset and to, like, to open yourself, to be vulnerable to them so that they can go through that process. And that's something that will never be valued under a capitalist system because it's not making any money. It's not bringing anything in. It's not making a product any more valuable. It's making a human life more valuable. And capitalism isn't concerned with human life. It's concerned with money. I... I need a moment to digest that, and I think everyone else just take a moment to digest that. Um, Sorry, I went off was, a little bit there. <laughs> that was no, no. I'm I'm so glad you're saying all of these things, and I think it, it speaks for itself. Right before this, you said something that really resonated with me as well. You said capitalism trains you to abandon. Yeah, should I elaborate? On yeah, that? could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah. So. You know, I'm involved in a lot of revolutionary organizing. Relatable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You are too. Yeah. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, <laughs> so a lot of what we aim to do is to create solidarity among communities, solidarity among people to come together and support each other. And the reason for that is because we're attempting to undo what is being done by capitalism. Capitalism and neoliberalism thrives on individuality. It thrives on the idea that you are alone in your experience, that what you're going through is on you, <laughs> to be simply put. And interesting, to frame it back into something like depression, it frames you that you're just sick. You know, like, you have a problem, your brain isn't working properly, you need this medication because then you will be fine and you can go back to work. Instead of framing it like you're a part of something that is deliberately trying to harm you and is deliberately making you lonely and sad and upset, capitalism trains you to abandon your communities, to abandon the people who are a part of your working class structure, right, to abandon fellow students, you know, to abandon other women, to abandon people in your communities, because what you're going through is your own experience. You know, it, you don't have any any solidarity with anyone else. And by doing that, by isolating you, by keeping you away from other people who are going through the same thing, they prevent revolution. They prevent the solidarity of communities that is ultimately a revolutionary action. When you can all come together and you can realize 
when you can raise your consciousness, right? And you can realize that everyone around you is going through something similar and that it's not your fault. And not only that, but it's not an individual experience, but rather a societal experience. You'll raise up against that and you will fight that system, but you won't do it if you think you're all alone. And that's why capitalism trains you to abandon. It trains you to run away from the idea that what you're going through isn't an individual experience. I literally need a moment after that. (laughs) (laughs) And I did like I wanted to do it by saying consciousness raising because I'm craft. That's what you're doing, right? Like the UM Consciousness Raising Association of Feminists. You guys are coming. You people. (laughs) You people are coming together. Us people. You're a (laughs) co-founder. I don't know about that. I just helped with some little bits and pieces. But you folks. so humble. (laughs) (laughs) You folks are coming together to talk about issues so that you can all realize that what you're going through, you're going through together. That is a, a revolutionary action to come together and be like, hey, I'm going through this thing. And it's really odd because I feel so alone. And then for everyone else in the room to stand up and be like, no, I've been through that too. Then you can start to dissect where that's coming from. Like, I feel that way because of crushing student debt. And everyone in the room will be like, yeah, I'm also afraid of crushing student debt. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. you realize, why are we paying for this education in the first place? (laughs) You know, and then suddenly things sort of zoom out and you're looking at things from a totally different perspective now. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. You (laughs) you hit the nail on the head. That's also a great explanation of consciousness raising. That's exactly why we do what we do. People will be like, well, you know, consciousness raising, that's cool and all, but I want to be an activist. And it's like, this is actually a form of activism. (laughs) Absolutely. To be able to value each other's humanity like that and to be able to have open discussion like that, it is actually an activist action. It's a beautiful thing. Self-care is an activist action in the society that is trying very deliberately and systematically to tear you down like that. (laughs) That's a very, very, very revolutionary act. I think it was Audre Lorde who said, like, self-preservation is an I'm act glad of political you're warfare. I'm glad yeah. that you're quoting Audre Lorde because usually I'm the person that does it and everyone <laughs> is just, like, tired of me saying it. <laughs> so it's caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. That's Audre Lorde. I have chills. I actually have chills right now. Um, so... Okay, so we talked about emotional labor. There's physical labor. There's, <laughs> I'll be okay. There's <laughs> skilled labor, skilled and unskilled labor, so-called, anyways. <laughs> What's called productive and unproductive labor. There's waged and unwaged labor. So emotional labor, we described physical labor. So this is the kind of labor that involves using your body, mm-hmm. like firefighting or like working in a factory where you're using your hands to build something. Mm-hmm. Skilled and unskilled. So... How much training, quote unquote, training Mm -hmm. is required for you to do this job? And I say, quote unquote, training because there's also value systems based on training. For example, Elizabeth, do you want to tell us a little bit about how your dad's skill set is valued? Yeah, I bring it up a lot. But for those who don't know, I grew up on a, a rural farm in the southwest corner of the province. It was a cattle and grain farm. And my family's been doing this for generations, right? So there's a lot of generational knowledge that comes with that. But my father, and I don't want to, you know, toot my own horn. He's a very intelligent man, and I love him very much. But he didn't graduate high school. He has no formal education in what he's done. At 17, he started working on the oil rigs and then came back and, and started farming. But farming is like a really multifaceted work. You have to be a skilled mechanic. You have to be skilled in accounting and skilled in business management You have to be skilled in animal care, in 
economics, agriculture, plant science. Like you have to have a lot of different skills. But if tomorrow everything fell apart and my dad needed, if my dad was writing up a resume, he has no institutionally recognized, recognized, thank you, recognized education. He doesn't even have a high school diploma, but he is an incredible, and like I see that with so many, so many people in my community at home who are incredibly intelligent, incredibly skilled, but they don't have the institutional recognition. And it's disappointing that that's not valued, you know, that because they don't have a piece of paper with their name on it, their work, their lifetime, their generations of skills aren't acknowledged. Absolutely. So that's definitely something to keep in mind when you're thinking about your own skill set. If you ever feel like your skills aren't useful, everyone has useful skills. It's not just about how your beloved systems of oppression categorize them. (laughs) So there's what's called productive and unproductive labor. If you're producing something or not is how I'm understanding this. Yeah. If you're contributing to the means and systems of production, mm-hmm. if you're creating things that can be sold, if you're creating labor that can be bought and sold, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I guess, like, it's interesting because it says unproductive labor. I can't think of a circumstance where you're doing labor, unless you're, like, bourgeoisie and you're literally just, like, parasiting off of other people's work. <laughs> Just to throw that out there. But like if you're Which is extremely feasible. Yeah. If you're like working class, if you're you know, a part of the proletariat and you're performing labor, I don't see how it's unproductive. Like I I can see how the bourgeoisie might categorize something as unproductive, of course. Right. It's not making them money. I would be willing to have more information about that because I don't understand how something that's like physically or emotionally labor intensive could be unproductive. Well, I don't think this particular categorization was created by someone who was familiar with with what actually is a quote unquote product. Yes. Are humans a product? Well. (laughs) Under capitalism, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Not Um, a valued one either. No. Yeah. Waged and unwaged. Yeah. Are you getting paid for what you're doing or yeah. not? Yeah. So as you as you described earlier with, with emotional labor, our parents being paid for <laughs> parenting. Yeah. Our, our, it's usually women being paid for housework. Mm-hmm. The yeah. double burden. The double burden. Yeah. The double shift. Yeah. I've actually, interestingly, I heard something recently about the triple shift. So the idea of including emotional validation and the emotional work that you put into being a partner or into a caregiver, yeah, as well as being someone who works in the public working sphere and domestic work at home, how that can actually be considered like a triple shift. And I, I thought that was a really interesting way of framing it because, you know, it's one thing to work in the public sphere and then to come home and to feed people and to clean up and to do, you know, domestic tasks. It's another to emotionally support people, to provide... And to be the manager of the household. Exactly, to manage people, which is not easy, right? And to provide emotional stability and an emotional net for those people in your life. That is another shift all in itself. And you see that when you're... I think when you go through a difficult time with your mental health, with your physical health, you realize how important that emotional labor is. You know, how much you need that from people or how much you provide to other people. I think it's definitely a shift on its own, something that deserves recognition. Absolutely. Another kind of interesting thing to consider that I've certainly been thinking about is 
how much does a job require you to use your body and mind? So this is pretty much the same thing we're talking about, but just kind of a different way of approaching it. So mm-hmm. this contrast became very evident for me when I go from something like support work to physical work. So support work I've been doing for a number of years. It's support work where I'm supporting people with intellectual and physical disabilities and just helping them with the things that they that they need help with. And then with firefighting, you can be a total jerk if you want to and still be excellent at your job. <laughs> so this is a very stark contrast. And then I also want to compare this to the experience of someone that's close to me who does sex work in terms of how much we use our bodies at work. So when I think about firefighting, you're generally kind of at arm's length for people in terms of physical closeness. You might be close to each other if you're carrying something together. You know, you'll be in the work truck together. But besides that, there's nothing that requires you to be touching other people for the most part. With support work, you do have to be using your body in that way. If you're helping somebody, their hygiene, that's what you're there to help them with. So that requires a degree of closeness. And when you consider sex work, absolutely, there's... <laughs> Physical contact has a lot to do with it. It right? has yeah. a massive amount to do with it. So I don't know really where I'm going with this point, but it's just something interesting to think about in terms of the different types of work. Certainly the ones that require physical closeness that are often more emotional in nature are not as compensated, not as valued. But at the end of each day, these jobs are going to exhaust you and should be compensated similarly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, this I, I, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but we sort of tend to separate our mind as not being a part of our body or our words, our voices as not being a part of our body. But they are, right? I mean, if your work involves a lot of emotional labor, like you were saying, the, the caregiving or your friend who's involved in sex work, that's a lot of emotional labor. That's a lot of using your mind and your voice to communicate with people, to set up a rapport with people, to develop trust with people, which is using your body. It's using your mind, but it's also using your body in the way that, you know, your body is not these separate pieces. It's a holistic thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But we tend to, we tend to separate that sort of labor from something like firefighting, where you go out there and you lift heavy things and you hold heavy things and I clearly don't know that much about firefighting, but you battle the, That's fire. indeed what happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of using so much as your voice or like the empathetic or emotional function of, of your brain, as opposed to like the more analytical, the more rational, the physical part of your body, the more masculine traits, one could argue, we tend to consider that more work. Like, you know, firefighting is more work than caregiving or sex work, which is... You know, as someone who participates in different forms of labor, I'm sure you definitely recognize that. Absolutely. Yeah. I would. So we're we're recognizing a need here to have a little bit of a tangent on sex work. There is a need for sex work. Yeah, sex work is kind of difficult to talk about when you're creating degrees of separation, right? But yeah. it's like it is a form of labor that though it is societally stigmatized, it's extremely important work because it's the oldest profession and not only that but it is a necessary profession you could even go back to what we were talking about before about we've created a system where people feel alone and people can't develop relationships with other people in a lot of circumstances it could be for their work it could be disability it could be a variety of reasons and so sex work becomes this opportunity for compensation where you can fill that role for people and then because sex work isn't 
it's kind of outside of a capitalist structure in that your friend is autonomous for their body in that circumstance. So they go into that labor situation in control of what they demand for their compensation. Not only that, but demanding emotional labor compensation. So instead of with other work where you go into it sort of expecting only physical, you're going into it like, hey, I demand compensation for the emotional labor as well. So sex work has always been, and I'm sure will continue to be a necessity, right? I mean, people need that emotional validation, that company, that emotional and physical labor. Capitalism continually makes it harder for people to make meaningful relationships with other people. We're taught, again, we're taught to abandon, to take care of yourself first, your, mm-hmm. yourself in that, if you like, your productivity first, your ability to be productive first. And sex workers are in this position where they are not protected by the government. They're not protected mm-hmm. by any sort of union. And they're sort of left in this circumstance where they are sort of having to protect themselves in this form where they are doing very direct and very obvious physical and emotional labor. And interestingly, having the, I would argue, benefit of getting to exist outside of the capitalist system. Yeah. Yeah. And until there are circumstances like unions for sex workers or support services, I mean, that's kind of on you to go in there and and demand the terms in which you're compensated. With my friend who does it, she doesn't work under any kind of boss. Everything's on her terms. And she's essentially her own boss. She's not having to give, you know, 90 percent of her profit to some overseeing bourgeoisie. (laughs) <laughs> Interestingly, her own body kind of becomes the bourgeois yeah. <laughs> um, while simultaneously being the proletariat. If you encounter a customer who you don't agree with, you can actually just remove them. There's no boss that's going to stand there and tell you that you have to put up with that nonsense. Now, as long as all goes well and as long as everything is safe, this can be a really fantastic thing. You're getting to send the terms. And finally, for my friend, she says, finally, she's doing emotional labor that she feels she's being rightfully compensated for, which is really revolutionary and really groundbreaking for her. And it's given her a lot of independence. Now, that isn't always the case because sex work, while it has this potential to be incredibly and wonderfully anti-capitalist and autonomous, it still exists in this place where our society is very anti-sex work. Stigmatized. It's extremely stigmatized and there aren't sufficient protections for this profession. It's awkwardly legal, legal in some fronts. Yeah, awkwardly decriminalized, but at the same time, the stigma is still preventing a lot of sex workers from being able to unionize, from being able to have safe spaces or, for example, reach out for resources on ways to demand that autonomy, you know, to demand that safety, to demand that compensation for their work. Yeah. Has this terrifying capacity to be even more victim blaming than than your typical gender oppressed person. So for my friend, thankfully, it it hasn't come to that. But the fear exists because she knows that if something did go wrong, if she shows up to work one day and then something happens she doesn't consent to, there probably will be victim blaming there. And that is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yeah, and that's a really sobering reality. A really great local group invested in the rights and safety of sex workers is SWAC, the Sex Workers of Winnipeg Action Coalition. They do great work and would be a fantastic source of information. So to sort of wrap up here, so for myself, and I'm sure many others, I have found that recognizing that our society is designed to profit off of our insecurities, our depression, and our anxieties, 
I have found this knowledge to be incredibly liberating. And while it can be terrifying and overwhelming to know that we're surrounded in such extensive systems designed to take us for all we're worth, you can find a lot of liberation for yourself and your community by finding a new way to value yourself and each other. Thank you again, Elizabeth, so much for coming onto the show. My pleasure. This has been great. This has been Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. Be sure to check out our Instagram, Wake the F Up UMFM. Catch you next week. I used to think I knew how we could live. But now everything's a question. Slide